Well, not so. So this morning, maybe, not for sure, but maybe my last occasion to stand on my soapbox and talk about mind-brain relationship. There's no guarantee, because I do have a few more days left. But uh, today, of course, we're going into awareness of awareness, this time focusing on agency. Who's, who's, doing, the, who's doing the meditation? There really seems to be, doesn't there? Doesn't there seem to be someone who's releasing the awareness, pulling it back in, forgetting to do so, then remembering, oh yeah, and then, and then going, etc. And so the real question is, who's doing what to what? Or what's doing what to what? And is the brain doing this all to us, and we're simply along for the ride? Basically, like, like a car, you know, what was it? Little Miss Sunshine? Remember that? It's, it's a funny, funny movie, and it's totally fictitious, so we can laugh. But when they had the dog, and they tied the dog to the back of the car, and then they forgot about the dog, and they drove away. You know, so it's a, we can laugh because it's just, you know, fiction. But who's the dog? Your brain or your mind? <laughs> who's the dog? Who's driving? Who's being dragged? <laughs> right? And so over the last 400 years, modernity, that is really started Europe, America, and then now it's become global, has just made absolutely extraordinary, admirable, fantastic progress in focusing the attention outward to the physical, the objective, the quantifiable world. And we've learned an enormous amount about, about it thanks to science and technology. And then we recall what William James said, for the moment what we attend to is reality. And it's, I think it's just perfectly obvious that over those 400 years of this extraordinary progress and single-pointed, almost like shamatha, on the external world, there's been nothing even remotely comparable in terms of developing the technology for observing the subjective world. Not even close, not even a thousand to one, million to one, maybe. So the massive emphasis on that, and of course what happens, oh gee, we think the whole world is material. Because that's what we've been attending to single-pointedly for 400 years, and not only have done so, but with tremendous benefit. But all the benefits hedonic, all the benefits objective. There was a, there's a physicist who just wrote a book um, about the, the applications of quantum, quantum mechanics to the modern world for iPhones and for digital clocks and all the really cool stuff we have, laptops and so forth. And I watched this on New York, uh, well, on one of the media, and he was being interviewed and he said, you know, if it weren't quantum mechanics, if that weren't for quantum mechanics, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have laptops or smartphones without, worth, without which life would not be worth living. That's direct quote. Life would not be worth living. And I just couldn't stand it. You know me. And so I, I wrote. I wrote. And I said, give me a, basically, I said, give me a break. And the next day, that thing was gone. <laughs> it was taken off the internet. <laughs> I don't know if there's any causal sequence there, but there it is. So, you know, this whole notion that only the objective is real and so finally, after roughly 300 years from the time of Copernicus until the scientists began starting studying the mind, when they fi finally got around to it, of course, the, from the time of William James, getting his medical degree at Harvard in the 1860s, he's already being told, when they almost knew squat about the brain, almost nothing, he was already being indoctrinated that your mind is nothing more than the brain and the agent is the brain. 
you are an illusion. You're along for the ride. You're the dog. If you're anything, if it's not simply a, a rope with, 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 an, with, an empty, <laughs> with an empty whatever little toggle, it's either a dog on the end of the rope or just a rope with no dog on the end at all and just dragging a rope, you know. And so out of all of this, and I, see, I hope it's obvious that I speak with great admiration for neuroscience and no great admiration for the really muddled thinking that often comes, that is expressed by muddled, by muddled thinking neuroscientists. Not all of them are. Uh, and that is when they see that there's a correlation between some specific brain event and a mental event. They see its cor correlation. Then they simply equate the mental event with a brain event. And that is some of the sloppiest logic that one can ever even imagine to think that if two things are correlated, they must be the thing, same thing, and oh, by the way, B equals A, not A equals B, B equals A. It's just completely arbitrary, sloppy thinking uh, because they're not trained in philosophy, for one thing. Almost har hardly any neuroscientists are. They're too busy getting all the coursework done for neuroscience. And then, on top of that, we see all the time, and it's in neuroscientific journals and it's in the media, and it's ubiquitous, that we find all these cognitive terms, talking, remembering, thinking, knowing, perceiving, distinguishing, deciding, and so forth and so on, all of these cognitive terms are given to neurons, brain activity, all the time. And so I saw this recently by uh, coming out, a, qu a quote by a very fine neuroscientist um, at a university, and I wrote, it, I, I wrote to the New York Times and said, you know, this is incredibly sloppy, sloppy language, and you're, you're just applying animism to the brain, as if, you know, there's spirits out there in the trees and the so forth, and they're all talking. And then one very good friend of mine, who's a very eminent neuroscientist, he said, oh, Alan, Alan, that was really off the mark. That was unfair. We, we're only using this, these words metaphorically, poetically. We don't really mean they really talk and so forth. And I wrote right back and I said, yeah, but you never say that. And you use it all the time, and then the press just monkey see, monkey do, says whatever you guys say. But you never say who is actually do making the decision, who actually knows. You're just using this language all the time, and you think you're using it metaphorically, but actually you start to use it literally. The press uses it literally. The public uses it literally. And after a while, you see all agencies given to the brain. So you see it all the time in the press. I watch the press pretty closely. And how does your brain handle terror? That was one I just saw. How does your brain handle terror? Not how do you handle terror. Not how does your mind handle terror. How does your brain handle terror? So you're along for, along for the ride. You're, just a, you're at best a sightseer, an innocent bystander, while the, while the brain is doing everything. I cannot sit by and think, oh, it's, you know, just, it's just a way of speaking, and let's not take it seriously, and so forth, because people are taking it seriously, and they're reducing themselves to brain activity. So one can say, well, okay, Alan, you've raised a, a, a legitimate philosophical conundrum. Gee, who knows? And, well, I suggest, actually, I think, think some people do know. Um, but that is clearly an opinion. I think people who have been actually observing the mind for 2,500 years uh, actually do know, know something, not only, using, you know, not only using words this way and that way. But I'll end on this point, and that is, here to my mind is a very powerful suggestion that there is something primary and something secondary between experience and matter. And we've heard this from William James, that experience is primary, the bifurcation of mind and matter is secondary. We hear it from John Wheeler, Information is primary, mind and matter is secondary. We hear from, from Stephen Hawking, experience is primary, the whole con construct of matter is secondary. I would suggest that you never get semantic information, meaningful information that is about something. Like, 
if I hold up two fingers like this, then you know that's the victory sign. Victory sign. Two fingers go up. That's about something. What does it mean? It means victory. The Second World War or peace, peace do it. It's either peace or victory, one of the two, but it means something. Those two fingers going up, it's about something. It has a referent. I would suggest that matter has no referent. It never has a referent. Matter just sits there. It's a chemical. Chemicals aren't about anything. They're just chemicals. Electricity isn't about anything. It's just electricity. Matter is not information, and you don't get information that is... And information doesn't squirt out of matter. You don't get semantic information out of matter. The very category of matter is an effulgence, a construct coming from information, coming from experience. Now, clearly, I think this is an intelligible position. It's not stupid, and it's not necessarily correct. But I think it's, it's got some pretty heavy, heavy hitters behind it, from William James to Steve, Stephen Hawking, John Wheeler, and so forth, let alone the whole Buddhist tradition. Uh, but here's one piece of evidence, and on, on, this, on, on this point I'll stop. But to my, to my mind, it's very compelling, my subjective appraisal. And that is we now know there's a wide variety of physical problems and psychological problems, so from, yeah, so both, that can actually be influenced in measurable ways with the so-called placebo effect, okay? So whether it's thinning your blood or just all kinds of stuff, lots and lots. I, I, don't know, I don't think it's true for all diseases, but for a lot of problems of the body that are purely physiological and, of course, mental, depression, anxiety, insomnia, and so forth and so on, this is very well known. Uh, I've, I've corresponded with the world expert on this. It's an Italian um, neuroscientist who studied the neurophysiological correlates of the placebo effect. He's really outstanding. And I've corresponded with another man in America who's one of the top people in the field. And the fact that this occurs, that you can take, you can be told, this will do such, such and such. And if you believe it, you expect it, you aspire for it, lo and behold, with that semantic information, oh, if I take this tablet, my blood will get thinner. That's semantic information, that, okay? If I take this tablet, I'm sure it's going to, because this doctor is from Harvard, this one's from Cambridge, this is from Mass General, uh, Massachusetts General Hospital. This is, this is world class, this, this is fantastic medicine, it's going to work right probably within seconds. And you take it, and lo and behold, your blood thins, or tumor gets smaller, and so forth and so on. Here's an interesting point about placebo effect. Show me the article where somebody takes a sugar tablet, placebo, kick, placebo effect kicks in, and it has some really nasty side effects. Can you f find even one paper where a person takes a sugar tablet, thinks this will thin my blood, or remove a wart, or all the kind of physical and psychological problems that the placebo effect may actually address, but, but there were side effects. Show me one. It's a smart missile. It's a smart bomb. From that information, this will help. That's, that's information. Information impacts matter. Now that we know. The iPhone should be enough. We put a lot of information in there. That alters the silicon, the chips. That alters matter. Put information into it. That alters matter. Information alters matter. Matter alters information. But here it comes from pure information. Alan, if you take this tablet, this is going to thin out your blood. And I say, wow, I take it. And it does just one thing, this sugar tablet. Well, of course, the sugar tablet doesn't do anything at all. But that belief, this will thin my blood, that 
Belief does only one thing. It thins my blood. Now, imagine you get in one of the heavy-duty pharmaceutical drugs, and we've all heard it. If you ever watch television ever, nightly news is the time to listen. On the major networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, they absolutely sledgehammer you with pharmaceutical drugs during, that, during, the, during, those, during the half hour international news. And listen to them, because it's almost every single ad. They'll show these happy people, radiant, joyful that they've gotten their drug, and then quietly, side effects may include, if you ever want to be pregnant, don't even dream about it. You may get cancer, tumors, you may die of a stroke, you may, uh, you may, you may have diarrhea, you may want to end your life, you may feel incredible depression. Enjoy this product, you're going to love it, you know? And we've heard this so many times. So the drug comes in, sledgehammers the brain, sledgehammers the system, collateral damage all over the place. Which is primary? The so-called placebo effect or the drug that just comes in like an elephant in a china shop and maybe gets the job done? Like for, AD, for ADHD, it's 50%. 50% of people take Ritalin for ADHD, 50% get benefit. The other ones just get the negative side effects. <laughs> so which is primary? Semantic information or the drug? So I will, and on this point, Shantideva, in the, in the patient's chapter, says something I think very, very revealing and relevant here. He said, if somebody comes over to you, I'll imagine Maria, I come to Maria, and I come, he's, Maria, you've been really bad, and I whack her on the shoulder with my iPhone. You know, really angry and I knock her on the shoulder with it. You've been really, I'm, I'm really angry at you. Whack you on the, with my iPhone. Imagine Maria then gets mad at my iPhone. Yeah, because what actually, I give you a bruise on your shoulder. And, and she says, oh, that hurt. And then she turns his direction, bad iPhone. I hate you too. You hate me? Well, I hate you even more. iPhone, you bruise me, and I, I'm never going to buy an iPhone. I'm going to go from Android from now on. Because I hate you, because you hurt me. Well, everybody would laugh. What a numbskull. Maria is no numbskull, but that would be so silly, right? Because you say, wait a minute, it was just the tool. I mean, think about it. Who did it? You say, oh, okay, I'm, Alan, I'm angry at Alan's hand, his arm, his bicep. I can't stand biceps. I, I especially hate his right bicep, because that's what really hit me. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then we trace it back. If I strike you out of anger, then what you should really be angry at is the anger, because that's the chief culprit. And anger manipulated me. So she looks at me with some really sarcastic smile. <laughs> and I get upset. And I whack her with my iPhone on the shoulder. Then she could get angry at me, because I, I whacked her, right? But what Shantideva is saying, why are you getting angry at the person? when what per caused the person to act in that way was anger. And anger dominated the person, enslaved the person, and then caused the action, right? So if you really want to be angry at something, don't be angry at the iPhone, don't be angry at the bicep, don't be angry at the person, be angry at anger, because that's the real culprit. And then we can consider anger, anger like suffering has no owner. And then he says, okay, if you want to be angry, well, be, be angry at anger generally. Anger to whom it may concern. I'm very upset with you. 
<laughs> so, who's doing what to what? And in the Buddhist tradition, the mind precedes all things. All things consist of the mind. They're formed of the mind. Very bad paraphrase of the first line of the Dhammapada. Mind is foremost. It's influenced by the brain. But between the two, mind and brain, I think there's empirical evidence. The placebo effect is a great big hint that between the two, mind is more fundamental. There's no question that the brain influences. Everybody who's been drunk knows chemicals influence the mind and so forth. But between the two, don't count out the mind. And to equate the mind with the brain is just sloppy thinking. So let's go in for ourselves now. Let's try to write, let's try to write 400 years of imbalance of focusing on the external, the physical, the quantifiable. Let's focus on the actual experience itself, the experience of being aware and seeking out who's in charge here. Settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural states, as we've done so many times before.
let your eyes be at least partially open, your gaze cast downwards. But without focusing on any object or meditating on anything, just be present without distraction, without grasping. And begin an oscillation. If you still find it helpful, you may conjoin this, this with the rhythm of the breath. Otherwise, do not multitask. Just set up your own rhythm at your own pace of inverting, concentrating, arousing your attention right in upon the experience of awareness itself. and simply releasing awareness into space without taking anything as an object, but gently sustaining the flow of awareness of awareness.
then invert your attention even more deeply. Not into conceptualization or beliefs or abstractions, but into your own experience. As you probe inwardly, see, is there a sense of you being the controller, the agent, the one who inverts and releases the attention? Attend to the agent and observe closely. Then release as before.
let the oscillation subside. Let your awareness come to rest in the middle. And simply rest in that awareness of awareness, in silence.
Regarding the relationship between consciousness and the brain, William James made a very provocative comment, a hypothesis that he couldn't test. He had no way of testing. So he just must have thought of this intuitively, I imagine. And he said, rather than the brain producing consciousness or even enabling consciousness, the brain actually constrains consciousness. It limits it. It boxes it in. Sounds very, very counterintuitive from one perspective, but actually it's very close to the Buddhist view. And that is that continuum of consciousness following death and prior to the next conception during the bardo. It's a subtler continuum of consciousness. It has no brain. It has no materiality. It It does have physicality. That is, the consciousness conjoined with the energy. The prana, the subtle prana, is physical. It's not, it's not material, not composed of atoms. It is physical. So it has location. And then the consciousness, that subtle continuum of consciousness, is non-dual from it. It's of the same nature as that subtle continuum of energy, like an energy field or a continuum. Well, when you're in the bardo, you have a number of powers, like clairvoyant powers and so forth, being able to read other people's minds and so forth, that's just natural in that continuum, in that context. But then the bardo being dies as a bardo being, and then let's imagine takes birth as a human being. That subtle continuum then gets embedded, like subtle continuum of energy consciousness, gets embedded in materiality, in the egg and the sperm, the growing fetus. And that subtle continuum now is constrained into a coarser level, coarse, coarse mind, the psyche. The psyche, in a manner of speaking, is enabled by the brain. That is, as the brain develops, the nervous system develops, the psyche as the coarse mind is enabled by this. And of course, then if you have brain damage, either either in the womb or any other place, then the coarse mind, the psyche, is then damaged. So you can no longer see, you can't remember, you can't think clearly, you become psychotic or what have you, retarded, and so forth and so on. All of that within the framework of the coarse mind. Right? Now, if all one knows about is the coarse mind, one can say, well, that's, that's it. Brain produces consciousness. Brain produces mind. Because damage the brain, the, the, the mind gets damaged, and then damage the brain enough, and then there's no evidence of the mind at all. But in my book, Mind in the Balance, I cite a remarkable study. It's an event, one of those uncontrollable, un- uncontrollable events some of you may already be familiar with it. I'm going to give a really short version of it. But it was a woman, you might recall, who had an aneurysm deep inside the brain, so deep inside that if they did ordinary surgery to get to the aneurysm, they'd do so much damage getting anywhere there with a knife in a living brain that they'd either kill her or she'd come out with severe brain damage because of the surgery. This was in oh, it was 1990s, so a long time ago. I can't remember. I thought it was 1992, but I'm not sure. But I've written about it. All the details are there. National Geographic covered, did a 20-minute segment on this, a National Geographic channel. 
and they tend to be not sci-fi channel, it's pretty responsible. <laughs> a book has been written on it, but it took place at a major neurological institute in the, in the United States, in Phoenix. And so the procedure they did was called hypothermia. What they had to do is they had to basically, they had to kill her. They had to kill her in the operating room, and that is they cooled, they, they first gave her massive doses of her barbiturates, completely knocked her out. So she is unconscious as far as they can tell. And then, having made her unconscious, then they cooled her body down to about 23, 24 degrees centigrade. Then her heart stopped. Then they injected into her heart potassium, potassium chloride, I think it is, whatever they use on death row. Uh, do you remember? But it's, 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 it's what they use on death row. They, they injected her heart with, with, a, with a, leath of a very powerful toxin, a poison, that would make the st heart stop fibrillating. So the heart stopped entirely. Her eyes were covered over, her ears were plugged for, for, for surgical reasons. Then they cooled her, her body down to about 15 degrees uh, Celsius. They, then they drained all the blood out of her head. Now she's dead. She's dead. And they, 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 they drained all the blood out of her head. And she had no EEG at all. She was brain dead. And then they went in with a knife when all of the veins inside her brain were all loose and slack. Then they can go in and not puncture all those veins that they would puncture if they went in normally because the veins don't have any blood in them. And, it's, so it's, and they went in there and these, overall that surgery was 80% effective at that time. She was one of the lucky ones. She was one within 80%. She didn't die. And she came out, but when she was in the, in the recovery room, I think the next day or what have you, with some loved ones and some nurse, nursing staff, just seeing that she was, you know, well recovering. Then she reported to everyone. She said, well, I've got something to tell you. And that is during that surgery, I had this powerful sucking sensation out of the top of my head after they knocked me out. And then suddenly I was looking down on my body and I could see everything in the, in the operating room with unprecedented clarity. I've never, ever witnessed anything visually so clear as what I saw there. She was pitch perfect. She was a musician and a song writer. She listened to the drill that was used to, to drill into her head to do the surgery. She identified exactly what pitch it was. She remembered it. She overheard conversations. She listened to conversations in the, in the operating room. She, just, she narrated what had been said. She watched the chief surgeon do something really odd, flapping his wings like a chicken at one point. She didn't know why he was doing that. And, and her relatives thought, this is really a fantastic hallucination you're having. But the nursing staff who were in the operating room, their, their eyes grew big like saucers. And they reported this to the, the doctors, the chief surgeon, and other. It was, a, it was a six hour and 55 minute surgery with something like 22 people involved. It was major, major technology, fantastic medicine. Everything she said was correct, right down to the pitch of the drill, the, 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 operate, the, the doctor who was slapping his wings, is, he went out to pee or something, came back into the operating room and didn't want to scrub, so he put his hands under, under his armpits, and then he, would, he directed the, the others doing their surgery by saying, hey, Carlos, you do this, and you do this, and that's how he did it. So he was flapping his wings like a chicken. Not ordinary procedure in the operating room, but she couldn't figure out why he was flapping his wings. And so when the chief surgeon, and this, this I have the, I, I presume it's probably still online on, on the, for the Natural Geographic channel. Um, they asked the chief surgeon, what do you make of this? 
Because they're, you know, by and large, these people are all materialists. They all believe the mind is the brain or just a function of the brain. And he said she had ways of knowing, she, she knew things that she had no business knowing. And another one said, he was not the chief surgeon, but another surgeon who was there, he said, given, what, given this, all of our assumptions about the relationship of the mind and brain, all bets are off. That should never have been possible that she would get so many details right and she didn't make any mistakes at all. Everything was right. She saw and she heard. Everything she saw and reported was accurate. But the real funny one was the chief surgeon who had actually devised this marvelous technique, this life-saving technique. When he, after commenting that, um, that she knew things, that she just had no business knowing, his final statement I hope you enjoy as much as I did, and, and still do. He said, isn't the brain an amazing thing? 